Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to Discover DEP, the official podcast of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Each week, we talk with DEP experts about how we protect and preserve New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. So that you'll never miss one of our podcasts, please subscribe to Discover DEP on iTunes or Google Play. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our podcast. Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. This episode is the last in a three-part series focusing on the Pine Barrens. In our previous editions, you've heard a forester's assessment of the Pine Barrens, focusing on the flora of the area. And then in our second edition, we got some background on the animals that live in the Pine Barrens. Today, we're concluding this three-part series with Tom Gerber, Section Forest Fire Warden and a longtime DEP employee, who's here to talk about the history and legends of the Pine Barrens. A New Jersey native, Tom has extensive knowledge of the Pine Barrens area and its rich history, and he's here to share some of this with us today. So, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Tom, I have a special place in my heart for the Pine Barrens as a scout. We took a trip every year down to the Wading River, so I really fell in love with this part of our state back many, many years ago when I was a scout and read at that time John McPhee's fabulous book, The Pine Barrens. So it's been really interesting over these previous two episodes to hear about the flora and the fauna of the Pine Barrens, and I'm so glad we have a chance to talk a little bit about some of the history and the legends that surround the Pine Barrens, because I remember the first time you see it, it's kind of like nothing else you see in the state of New Jersey. Isn't that right? Yes, yeah. Largest wilderness east of the Mississippi River. As we've learned earlier, some of the plants and everything you find there are kind of unusual as well. But the Pine Barrens has a very long history in New Jersey, and I wonder if we could start with you telling us, Tom, a little bit about that history. How far back in history were the Pine Barrens being used by human beings? I'm no expert on history beyond a couple hundred years, but I can tell you that the first people there were the Lena Lenape Indians who roamed the forest, and they lived there. They actually had settlements in areas around modern-day Vincenttown, New Jersey, and they would hunt and fish and travel back and forth to the coast. So they were probably some of the first people there. And then in the 16th century, then Europeans began arriving and clearing the forest and setting up some farms and the attempts at industry of the 17th century. As you go into the Pine Barrens, the soil tends to be kind of sandy and kind of surprised to hear they try and start farms there because there are certainly other parts of the state where I imagine the soil is more fertile. But there certainly are, as, as we've learned, you know, cranberries grow great down there. Certainly blueberries grow very well down there. So when those first European settlers came, many of them from England, in addition to setting some farms up and stuff, they established communities that from what I've read anyway, tended to be kind of isolated from other parts of the state and almost developed their own separate subculture in New Jersey. On my mother's side, actually, in 1690, they arrived in a little area that was known at the time as Bridgeport, and it's modern-day Wading River, very close to New Gretna. Mm -hmm. It's right off the coast. It's right at the mouth of the Mullica River. They settled there, and they began 
working in the cedar forest, cutting cedar trees for shake roofs and for boat building and all. So they were a lot of more in the boat building and the industries, and they just they moved on to other jobs. They learned how to use the forests and the marshlands. They would go from wood cutting, and in later years they would go into the cranberry and huckleberry picking. And they were uh, some of the you know in those early years in the 17th century it was the, it was all about iron and charcoal. The iron industries, they uh, made munitions and all, a lot of different places like Badstow Village. They made munitions for the Revolutionary War, for the War of 1812. That was driving force in early industry. And also the charcoal industry was supplying fuel wood to keep these small cities, these small towns going in, in the Pinelands. So you mentioned your mother's family came over in 1690 from... They came over from England. From England. Yeah. And so your family, at least on your mother's side, has been here for almost 330 years, closing in on. Yeah, and then yeah. as they marry into on my father's side, also uh, early 18th century when, when the Gerber side arrived in the area of Badstow Village. And they settled in a little town called Tyler Town, which is just outside of Badstow. So there must be in your own family a lot of stories and lore about those early days in the Pinelands. There are. There are a lot. There are a lot of milestones, and some of them not that distant in history. Some of them 100 years or so, but the, yeah, quite a few. Things. Having grown up with those stories, what are some of your one or two favorite stories of kind of your ancestors in the Pinelands? There was stories of Emilio Carranza, who was actually doing a goodwill flight across the Pine Barrens, leaving from New York en route back to Mexico City in 1928, when he Unfortunately, a violent thunderstorm arose over the Pinelands, and he had crashed and was killed. Uh, so that was a story that was always told. Uh, members of you know my mother's family and all were actually part of the search parties. And my great-grandfather at the time was actually the caretaker for what is now known as the Wharton State Forest. So he was very active. So that was a really, really good story, that, a lot of history, and that still carries on. The goodwill is still shown. 88 years later, there's still services held at the Carranza Memorial on Carranza Road in Tabernacle in the Wharton Forest, and dignitaries come from all over the country and from Mexico to pay respect to Emilio Carranza, the uh, Charles Lindbergh of Mexico. That's great that uh, even this many, almost 90 years later, that he's still being remembered. You said he was on a goodwill mission? He was on a goodwill mission. His idol was, was Charles Lindbergh, who had also done, before him, had done the flight across the across the Atlantic in yeah. 1927. Mm -hmm. Wow. Any other stories from the past that come to mind? Well, my my mother was born and raised in the village of Atsine, and one of the things they always talked about there was actually a, uh, there was a huge cranberry plantation there known as Hampton Furnace Bogs. Actually, it was owned by Andrew Ryder, who Ryder College is named after, mm. and Ryder and Wilkinson Cranberry Bogs. And in 1912, there was a robbery that took place in this desolate spot of the pines, and a gunfight ensued. And with the robbery involved a large payroll for the cranberry workers, the cranberry pickers, wow. in October of 1912. And one person was killed. And law enforcement at the time was very sparse, very difficult area for not only the state police, but the local Burlington County detectives. One of the cranberry growers was killed, and they tracked the criminals down. The Central Railroad ran through the heart of the Pines in those days, and the fugitives escaped via railroad. 
And they were tracked down as far away as Italy by a famous detective of Burlington County known as Ellis Parker. That was one of the cases that anyone that ever lived in the Pines or grew up, everybody knew the story of the Ryder Wilkeson murder at Hampton Boggs. Wow. I wonder if that was an inspiration for the series Broadway Empire, where they had a, a similar sort of robbery take place. Of course, it was supposedly during Prohibition, but as you described it, that's the first thing that came into my mind. Yes, yeah, it was actually October of 1912. Wow, so before Very, Prohibition. But yeah. As we know, Hollywood always takes some liberty with the facts to fit the story. Yeah. So uh, got to wonder whether maybe they had read about that in their research and applied it to the series. So those two events followed by, and I have to come back to my occupation, the other event was the Chatsworth Fire, July of 1954. Anyone that's still alive in the Pines today remembers that day, and they'll, they never forget the Chatsworth Fire. It was a 20,000-acre incident that actually started in Shamong area of Wharton Forest and went all the way through to what is modern-day Route 72, and the unique thing about this 20,000-acre fire, it had burned over an area about one week in time. It had consumed this 20,000-acre. But on one fateful thunderstorm night, the wind arose before a thunderstorm, and the wind was blowing like 65, 70 miles an hour. And the entire 20,000 acres that had burned that week before, it all lit up. So all the, the natives of the pines that lived in the Chatsworth area they all thought the world was coming to an end. Mm. And there were stories of people actually getting inside of refrigerators, and they were just terrified. They went to the lake in Chatsworth, and fortunately no lives were lost. Wow, the thunderstorm eventually brought rain and kind of saved the day. So the fire was started by natural causes. The fire actually started in a cedar swamp. It was more than likely man-caused. Okay. Um, there were a couple theories of the day. One was hot sun shining through a glass jar that the men were using to drink, and the other was the possibility that someone had been smoking cigarettes in the dry cedar swamp. So an accidental. Yes. Was it arson? No, it was not arson. No. No. 20,000 acres, though, that's a lot of land. It, it actually sculpted a lot of the forest that we see there today. That's It actually burned the trees right to the sugar sand. So wow. we, we still see the forest as a remnant of that 1954 blaze. That's more than 60 years ago now. Yes. Wow. Yep. Now, tell us a little bit about the work you do to help protect the Pine Barrens, which is such a unique ecological treasure, really, in New Jersey and really in the country. There's, mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's any other place in the United States that's like the Pine Barrens. There's, there's a couple smaller examples. Long Island has about 100,000 acres. And then on uh, the Cape Cod area of Plymouth County, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. is very similar. And then there's smaller tracts. But the pines themselves, very unique. A lot of it shaped by the abuses of, of the 19th century. A lot of cutting, a lot of burning. So it's overcome a lot of that scenario from those early days. So my job as a forest fire warden is like multifaceted. It starts in the winter months, typically like January, we dedicate a lot of time to training the people we work with, the fire departments, the police departments, emergency management. And then we do what we call mitigation projects. We go out and we do control burns, January, February, March into April. We're constantly educating the public about how they can live in the Pinelands safely, 
things you need to do around your properties to make them fire safe. You need to give us some minimum of 30 feet. We'd like 100, but if you give us 30 feet of defensible space around your home or your property, chances are we can mitigate and take care of it if a fire does occur. Mm. So we're always doing homeowner programs. We have fire-wise communities. We have fire-adapted ecosystems. So just trying to get everybody on board that, hey, there's been fires on this landscape for thousands, thousands of years. Sure. Uh, we're, we're the newcomers there. And the interesting thing with the agency I work for in DEP, the Forest Fire Service, back in the 1890s when they were having these big fires, they said, hey, we need an agency that's just solely focused on this forest fire problem. Because at the time, they said, that, you know, there could be nothing in the Pinelands without some form of forest fire protection. So it's... And there's really developed over the decades a real science to fighting these fires as well, isn't it? It's not just a question of going and putting water on it. There are all sorts of techniques that you and your colleagues have developed over the years that enable you to be much more effective at fighting these fires when they do start. Yeah, there's no real one-size-fits-all. We have a lot of really wonderful heavy equipment. We have air resources. We have fire crews. We see fires that need to be suppressed as quickly as possible, and there's other fires where we try to minimize the damage to the natural environment. So we may, instead of bulldozing a road, we may have a, a natural stream or something where we can buffer and slow the fire down and, and keep it from impacting the public. You have pretty specialized equipment, too, that you use. Because the land, most of it is so sandy, you can't just drive a regular fire truck in there, now, can you? Now, our, our little brush truck, uh, which was developed in, in the uh, 1950s era, it continues, it's been modernized today. It's capable of carrying 300 gallons of water, and it's barred out to go through and around the, the sandy trails of the pines and, and get us into the fire as quickly as possible. Yeah, I had a chance... Uh, year or so ago to take a ride through part of Wharton in one of those trucks and uh, was kind of amazed as I was in the front you could look out and see the terrain coming up and how narrow the roadways were and you know dips and sand and water pools and stuff and I thought gee we're going to get stuck but we made it the whole three hours we were out there without any problems so it's quite an adaptable piece of equipment. Yes it is. Yeah and I understand that you all kind of fabricate them, the fire service fabricates them themselves. We do. Our automotive mechanics staff, yeah, they actually have a research and development facility in Mays Landing, and we have three satellite facilities where they do all the uh, fabrication and uh, take take it from cabin chassis and turn it into a a firefighting, brush firefighting Yeah, that's great. Now, of course, no episode talking about the history and the lore of the Pine Barrens would be complete without talking about the Jersey Devil. I remember on the first trip I took with scouts, down to the Pine Barrens, one of our scoutmasters told us we had to watch out for the Jersey Devil. We, if we saw these blazing set of eyes at night, you know, we had to be really careful. Tell us about the legend of the Jersey Devil. Well, I have to be a little careful there because I may actually be related to him in some way or another. <laughs> Mother Leeds had 12 children. She's, you know, made the statement if there were a 13th, that it shall be a devil. And that's kind of how it began back in the early 17th century. So she was kind of tired of having children. She was tired of having children. So the story goes that, you know, he was kept in this old stone house, which if you're ever down by Leeds Point, that's where the Jersey Devil was born. Mm -hmm. So if you're ever down visiting the Oyster Creek Inn down Mm -hmm. there in the marshes, there's a little stone house that's still still there today in the 
theory is that's where the Jersey Devil was born on one thunderstorm night. <laughs> so is one of your ancestors Mother Leeds? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm related to the Leek family, so I don't know. It's pretty pretty close there, but you have nothing to fear from the Jersey Devil. He's, that's good. A lot of, a lot of crazy stories about yeah, it. Yeah, there's been some crazy years throughout history where he's made appearances outside of the Pines. They've been pretty quiet of late. Yeah. And, of course, you can see the Jersey Devils on the ice during hockey season. Correct, right? yeah, correct. Yeah. Which is a great story. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, sitting around campfires as a young scout, hearing stories about the Jersey Devil, you know, you made sure your tent was zipped up that night. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, you didn't want to hear one of those herons hollering in the woods there. No. <laughs> no, that's for sure. And one of the things that I found fascinating reading McPhee's book quite a few years ago, he talked about this kind of subculture there called the Pineys, which was really not a very respectful way to refer to people whose families had been there for generations. There were so a lot of very disrespectful rumors and descriptions of the people who lived in the Pinelands. What do you think contributed to that? I think the isolationism at the time and wherever the distant traveler was coming from, if they weren't familiar with the Pinelands, I think a lot of these people lived in rough ramshackle houses. Some of them actually lived in what we call turf houses. Mm. So these charcoal men, they actually had to live out in the middle of the forest where they were cutting the trees and they were they had these charcoal pits that they had to tend to. So they would li they would build them out of the earth. Mm. These these huts were made out of earth. So these guys were standing by a burning charcoal pit that if they left it burn too long, let too much air to it, it would be nothing but ashes. Right. So they had to be right there on site. They're grimy, dirty. All, you know, so I, I think that's how some of the things got misinterpreted and, yeah. and, and, and probably some, some illnesses and stuff like that. Yeah. Certainly, every time I've been in the Pine Barrens, everybody I have met there has been just really proud, I think, of the ecology there, of the history there, uh, of their own family's history there. It's uh, a very, very special place in New Jersey. And you know, here we are, the most densely populated state in the nation, but you can go into this. What's the, what's the total area of the Pine Barrens? A little over 1.2 million acres. So about 25% of the land mass in the state yeah. is in the oh, Pine yeah. Barrens, which means the rest of and, and the population there is relatively sparse compared to the rest of the state. So at a little over a million acres, it's about a quarter of the land area of the state, and it's not as densely populated as the rest of the state. But it is certainly a very special place and a very unique place and one that I have always felt when I'm there really kind of gets you in touch with nature. There's almost, uh, for me, a spiritual feeling that comes over whenever I spend time in those woods. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's there's a, a lot of blood, sweat, and tear from a lot of inhabitants over the years that had made a living in, in that forest. And, and a lot continue today. A lot of the, uh, the original families are still there. They're growing cranberries and blueberries. They're working in the forest. They're they're still cutting trees for lumber and you know doing all these good things and clamming and the list goes on and on and on. The people there are really are examples, I think, of self-reliance in a very big way. Mm -hmm. No mm -hmm. doubt about it. Which, of course, is a spirit that has animated this country. I think ever since European settlement, the same as the. The West was settled and everything else. These are folks who often are spending time in land that's not that easy to make a living on and really persevering and working incredibly hard and making it work for them and their families. Absolutely. 
If someone wanted to go down to the Pine Barrens, what would you suggest should be the first thing they should do when they go there? They should go to Badstow Village. Mm -hmm. That should be the first place you go in the Pinelands. And then you can kind of like adventure out from there. But, you know, set up base, check out Badstow. And then there's a Lair State Park to the north. There's Bella Plain to the south, and then you can you can just see how the different occupations, you know, the different recreation opportunities, and uh, there's some really good examples of, of 17th and 18th century New Jersey. Yeah, it's a great place to really get oriented to the history and to gain a greater understanding of the history and the people and the culture uh, in that million acre Pine Barren area. And then for the non-history, you know, the kayaking and all is yeah. second to none. Yeah, it's great. I, I have one legend from my own scouting days that I'll share. I was in an explorer post, which uh, was actually co-ed division of the Boy Scouts. So when we would go on our trip, we always had to have a female chaperone as well as our male scoutmasters. And one year, one of the women who came with us, you know, we'd always go in early April, so we'd be there before the bugs. And she and her husband camped in the tent. It got very cold this one night. And we were tending the fire early in the morning, getting ready to, you know, make breakfast and stuff. And she came out of her tent carrying a little tin cup with frozen water in it. And we noticed she got close to the fire, but not too close. You know, we thought, well, why don't you heat up your water for make a cup of coffee or something? And we looked in and there were her uppers that uh, she had put in the cup the night before and had frozen solid in the cup of water. And she was trying to thaw them out gently. Well, that doesn't quite rise to the level of the Jersey Devil. It is an image that is indelibly etched in my brain. <laughs> yeah, and you have a great time of year coming up. Autumn's a really great time to visit the Pinelands. The colors, you know, will, will rival a lot of the areas in, in New England. It's very beautiful. It's a very special place. So, Tom, I want to thank you for taking time out of uh, what I know is your very busy schedule to be with us today. Uh, share some of your stories and lore and facts and history about the Pinelands. I think it's great that we're able to have somebody here who in 2017 is carrying on a tradition that was started in your family back in 1690 of preserving and protecting and uh, making sure that the Pinelands continues to be a place that here in New Jersey we can all continue to be proud of and continue to enjoy as a very unique spot in our state and, and a pretty much a unique spot here in the country. So Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at dep.nj.gov. Enjoy the rest of your day.